Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Well, this morning I want you to take your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Nehemiah is three books to the left of Psalms, if you need uh, help finding it. Nehemiah, chapter 1. And today I want to talk to you about having a holy anguish. Now the word anguish means to have extreme distress over something, some distress and anguish. Now, you know, I talk about that, that doesn't sound like a good thing, doesn't sound like a positive thing, doesn't sound like a holy thing, but it's holy depending on what you are distressed about. Too often we get anguished and distressed over things that do not matter in the grand scheme of life. How many of us become distressed or anguished over TV, movies? Ladies, how many got anguished every week over This Is Us? Men, how many got anguished over the end of Avengers Endgame when Tony Stark died? How many get anguished over sports? How many Alabama fans were anguished over the national championship and distressed? How many were in anguish whenever the Atlanta Braves lose? We get distressed over such trivial matters. How many of those things really matter in the long run? None of it. A hundred years from now, nobody's going to remember or care about who won a sports game or what happened in a movie. We're called to something different. We're called to a holy anguish. A holy anguish is to be distressed over things that pertain to God. Eternity. The Gospel. When we see this world growing darker and darker by the moment and literally going to hell, that's where our anguish comes from. You know, we celebrate that Roe versus Wade was overturned, but you know what? That still means there's abortions in many states. And then you see people picketing, wearing these t-shirts, Proclaiming how many babies they killed in their life. Should we not have anguish over those babies who were lost, but should we not also have anguish over those lost souls? What about those so-called parents who introduced their young kids to all sorts of sexual perversions, even mutilating their kids to change them into something that God did not make them or create them to be? How can we not have anguish for those kids? How can we not have anguish for the lostness of all of those involved? Oh yeah, there's a lot of things we can have a holy anguish about. But today, specifically, I want to talk about having a holy anguish over the state of the modern church. Because the modern church is in chaos and it's dwindling fast. I mean, not only are there less people percentage-wise going to church than ever before, before in the history of of our nation but there is wokeness and false teaching in the name of the church that seems to abound more and more and the real church the bible believing church the gospel preaching church has decided to cloister itself within its four walls instead of reaching out to a lost community who is condemned to eternal judgment where is our anguish over that i mean even in our own southern baptist convention it's in a mess it is definitely not unaffected by the 
things that are going on in this world. Where is our anguish for the church that Jesus is so jealous of? But how many of us, we have no concern for that? Look, as long as I get my paycheck, as long as I have a house, as long as I have my entertainment, as long as I have my sports, as long as I have my toys, that's all I care about. What about Christ? What about His church? What about the gospel? What about eternity? That's where our anguish ought to be. Today we're called to an anguish, to be distressed over what's going on in this world, in the church. We want to have a holy anguish over the church and, and, and we want to see life brought back into the church. Power brought back in the church through the Holy Spirit. We want to have anguish over the church so that it would proclaim the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus came, that He died, that He rose again and all who believe in Him have everlasting life and joy and peace. Where's our anguish over that? In the passage we're looking at today, Nehemiah had an anguish over the sad state of his people. So much so that it caused him to earnestly seek God so that God would do something about it. And what I want us to take away from the passage we're reading today is that the weak worldly and compromised state of the modern church ought to cause us such an anguish that it moves us to earnestly seek God, to seek His face and cry out to Him for revival, true revival, not revival meetings, a true revitalization, a bringing back to life of the church. For him to move in power. That's what we want. And so I want to read verses 1 through 11 of Nehemiah chapter 1, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read these, these verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, as I was in Susa, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in, a, in the uttermost parts of heaven, 
From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray that we are completely and utterly bothered and distressed that your name is not being glorified, not only in the lost world, but not even in the church. Give us a burden, Lord, for that, such that we seek your face. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Now, I want to quickly give you some uh, context to what is going on here so we understand. The Jews had been taken into captivity by Babylon because of their disobedience to God. And Jerusalem and the temple was completely destroyed. Now, eventually, decades later, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus the king allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and decreed that the city of Jerusalem would start to be built again. But years later, we read in the book of Ezra that some enemies of the Jews gave a bad report to King Artaxerxes, and so Artaxerxes made a decree to stop the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, Nehemiah was cupbearer to Artaxerxes. And one of his brothers, and we think it's like an actual biological brother, came to him, and, and told Nehemiah about the state of the Jews, the state of the people, and the state of the city as well. Because the city was still in ruins, and the, and the, 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 the walls were still torn down. And, you know, in, in some sense, you could say that the people themselves, they were in ruin. It talked about the guilt and the, just the shame. They were in, in shame. And Nehemiah had an anguish over his people. And over his city. And because of that anguish, Nehemiah did something about it. You know, when, when, when he got the report from his brother about everything that was going on with the people and everything that was going on with the city, you know, Nehemiah didn't just stand there and, and, and say, oh, you know, that, that's a real bummer. And then just go on with his day. And just continue living his life. You know, I, well, man, sorry to hear about my people and sorry to hear about Jerusalem all right, I'm going back to work and I'm going to go play racquetball afterwards or whatever. He didn't just go on his merry little way living his life. He was in anguish when he heard that. And his anguish led him to action. So what does it say in verse 4? It says he wept and mourned for days and that he continually, that means more than once, fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know, it, it, it's not just merely he had this distress, but this anguish caused him to seek God over and over and over again until God moved in him and until God moved in the people. And there's our lesson. We need to have an anguish over the state of the modern church, not so much that we can just you know, sit there and complain and sit there in, in our pews and judge them. Yeah, man, them, them, them churches, they're bad. 
And then we start picking on other denominations. Oh, man, them other denominations, they're really going down, down the toilet, ain't they? You know, no! That's not what the anguish leads us to. Our anguish over the modern church should be such that it causes us to seek God in prayer and fasting. I know that's a bad word in Baptist circles, but prayer and fasting over and over and over and over again until we see life breathe back into the church and we don't stop until it happens. Our anguish ought to lead to intercession. Our anguish ought to lead to us interceding on behalf of the church. Now, that's what, that's what Nehemiah did. And there's several aspects to the prayer of Nehemiah that I want to touch upon to encourage us in our prayer for the modern church. So that, you know, it, it can be a model for us in the way that we seek God because of our anguish for the church. And so, number one, we base our prayer on God's character and attributes. We base our prayer in God's character and attributes. So Nehemiah, in beginning in verse 5, he, he, he recognizes who God is. He, 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 he starts talking about God's character and attributes and what it is about God that directs the rest of the prayer. Here's the thing about praying to God. We don't come to God and just start spouting off our Amazon wish list. God is not an internet marketplace. You know, I'd, Lord, I'd really like that. I'll move that over to my wish list. And Lord, I'd really like that. I'll move that over to... No, we are dealing with a God who created everything, who is holy, who is just, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-benevolent, righteous, and perfect in all of His ways. That's who we're dealing with. That determines the rest of our prayer. Knowing who it is we're coming to to pray to. But there's something specific about what Nehemiah said that I want to touch, touch upon. Because Nehemiah says, God is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with the people who love him. And that is so important. God makes covenants. He makes agreements with people. And God keeps his part of the covenant. He, makes, he keeps his part of the covenant. Now, with, with Israel, the covenant was that they would follow the law and then, then they would prosper in the land and they would be his people. Well, they didn't follow the law. They're the ones that broke the covenant. But you know what? Even though they broke the covenant, God did not. God still stayed faithful to them because if he didn't, he would have just let them rot in Babylon and then Medo-Persia. But he didn't. He didn't give up on the people. He didn't just kind of say, oh, these Israelites are getting on my nerves. Forget about them. No. Why? Because of, in the ESV, it's translated steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word kesed. It speaks about a loyal love to those that he is in covenant with. It means that God stays loyal to those that he is in covenant with. God stays loyal to what He says and does. He stays loyal to His people. And when we go and pray to God uh, with the anguish that we have for His people, that directs our prayers, knowing He is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He remains loyal to those. 
Now, for, for us, God is in covenant with those who have believed in Jesus Christ, the true church. And you know what? God will discipline His church, but God will never give up on His church. God will never throw the church aside. But neither is God going to give the okay to a church that is trying to think of the right, right words, so, so I'm careful with that. A church that is lazy, a church that is mediocre, a church that is lukewarm, it doesn't mean that he will never break the relationship. He will never break the covenant, but it doesn't mean that he's going to work through such a church. But we know that God will never throw the church aside either. And we know that God is powerful enough to breathe new life into the church. And that's what's needed. And so God's character and his attributes point to the fact that God is devoted to his people. He has the power to make his people this kingdom-building megapower that the church was always intended to be, by the way. And so because we know he doesn't throw us aside, because we know he remains loyal, we let that speak into our prayer. That determines how we approach God and why we approach God the way that we do his character his attributes we approach him that way and we base our prayers on that but there's not only basing the prayer our prayers on his character and his attributes number two we fill our prayer with confession of sin we fill our prayer with confession of sin nehemiah knew that god if god was going to act in the midst of his people, for his people, on behalf of his people, that there would need to be an extended time of confession of sin. Because the reason that these people were in the mess that they were in was because of their sin. And it's after confession and repentance that God will act and restore because sin is a barrier. It's not a barrier, now for us, it's not a barrier to relationship, but it's definitely a bar barrier to, to fellowship. But, you know, for the Israelites, sin was a barrier. The barrier needed to be taken down by sin, by, by confession of sin and repentance. And the church needs to do the same thing. We are in covenant relationship. God will remain loyal. But if we actually want to see Him work in our midst, instead of being the weakling that the church is, we need to get rid of that barrier. Our sin needs to be dealt with. And you notice first <coughs> that he confesses the sin of the entire people, recognizing that by their actions they brought God's judgment upon themselves. I mean, it, it talks about them being in ruin. Well, it's their own fault that they were in ruin. And so he confesses for the people. But notice, Nehemiah also confesses for himself. He makes it more personal. I sinned. Me and my household. I contributed to that problem. So, right? So Nehemiah, 
he confesses that he is part of a system, part of a group that contributed to the ruin. He is a Jew. He is part of a people that did God wrong. Well, guess what? We are part of a church system that has done God wrong. We are part of an evangelical movement that has gotten fat and happy and decided that, well, the best way to do things for the kingdom is our own way. We're going to determine what's best for the kingdom, kingdom work, and we're just going to do things in our power, our own way, in the power of the flesh, and we have got such a smooth-running machine, we really don't need God to help us with anything. Because imagine this, the programs of the church. The things that the church does. If the Holy Spirit would remove himself from it, would it keep running along as normal? Guess what? If it would, that means the Holy Spirit was never in it to begin with because we were doing it in our own power. We've decided that, that it, it's, it's programs and it's buildings and it's entertainment that's going to grow the church. That's how the church will work. And we've neglected evangelism and discipleship and holiness and personal devotion. We have been part of a system that has wed itself to the world and allowed worldly values to creep in and push out the true biblical worldview. And so we're part of a system, and we need to confess that. But then it gets a little more personal. Nehemiah confesses that he sinned, and he contributed to the problem. Because this is interesting. When, when the whole uh, captivity happened, he wasn't even born yet. And yet he is recognizing that in his life and in his time, his sin contributed to the problem. His sin continued, uh, con was, was contributed to the ongoing problems of the Jews. The Jews were still in ruin because of his sin. And so we need to acknowledge that, guess what? I am part of the problem. We have to acknowledge and agree with God that our sins have contributed to the sad state of the church. But we don't like doing that. Oh, you know, the, 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 reason, the reason why the church is in such sad shape is because of the liberalism over here and the wokeness over there and, and the abortion over here and the perversion over there. That's where the problem of the church comes. But me, I'm squeaky clean. Oh, really? None of us are. We have all contributed to the problem of the church and why the church finds itself in the state that it is in. Yeah, you know what? We'd rather compare ourselves to everybody else. But we're never called to compare ourselves to anybody else. We're called to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. When you compare yourself to Jesus Christ, how are you faring? How are you doing with that? Yeah, me too. I'm in a whole heap of trouble there. Well, at least I'm not out there doing abortions and living that perverted lifestyle. Well, you know, it's good that you're not. But what about the sin that is in your life? What about your prayerlessness? What about your gossip? What about your pride? What about your laziness? You're all looking at me like, how dare he? Who 
does he think he is saying, saying all that? Because guess what? I'm in the same boat. Instead of excusing our sin, instead of trying to pass it off, well, it's not so bad. Confess it to God. Confess to God that you and I are part of the problem, both in the community and as an individual, and repent of it. And notice he doesn't mince words about what sins he and the people committed. He didn't try and water down their guilt. He didn't try and give sin cutesy names and things like that so that, you know, it doesn't sound so bad. I mean, he calls it specifically. Okay, we acted corruptly. We broke the commandments. We have not kept the rules and statutes. He didn't go around saying, well, you know, I, I've made some mistakes. Well, you know, it's just that I have a low self-esteem. No! He confessed exactly what he did. When was the last time you confessed that you didn't trust God? That you didn't have enough faith? How many times did Jesus say, O ye of little faith? Well, that's sin. Until we get real with our sin, we're going to continue to contribute to the problem. So instead of focusing on anybody else's sin or blaming the problems of the church on this person or that person, confess, 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 confess how you contributed to the problem, how I contributed to the problem. Oh, it's the, it's the denominational leader's fault that we're like this. Oh, it's the pastor's fault that we're like this. It's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. What about you? What do you need to confess? So that's definitely a big, big part of the prayer that comes from anguish for the church. But number three, we season our prayer with promises from God's Word. We season our prayer with promises from God's Word. So we, we pray God's Word back to Him. Because that's, we, we are, we are Bible-believing Christians. We believe that, that God's Word is inerrant, infallible. Well, then we trust in it and we find God's promises and, and we, we build our prayer on that. So Nehemiah did that in verses 8 and 9. I mean, he, he repeats back to God his own word coming from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Lord, you said through Moses that if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. And well, that's exactly what you did. But Lord, your word also said that if we repent, you would bring us back into the land. And so Lord, here is this promise in your word. And I'm going to pray in agreement and in according to that word. And so please, Lord, make that happen because that's what your word said. Well, guess what? God has promises for Scripture. I don't have enough time to even begin to go through all of them. But you know what? When I, when I was going through some of the promises in Scripture that are given to the church, I was amazed at the number of them that had to do with power and authority. Did you know that as God's church, we have power and authority. I mean, we, we don't live like that. We don't act like that. I mean, again, we cloister ourselves as, as well, we're our little holy hovel here, and, and we're just going to make sure we endure. We're just going to try and get through. We're just trying to get through. Instead of going out there and doing some amazing things for God, we're not living in the power and authority that God has given His church. Maybe that's why the church is in the shape that it's in. But we're told in Matthew 16, 18 that the gates of hell can't prevail against us. That's not like a defensive thing, like, okay, because 
you don't attack with gates. You're not carrying a gate and start beating someone with the gate. The gate is a defensive thing, which means the church is on the offense. And the gates of hell won't prevail against us. We, y'all, we can storm the gates of hell and knock it down. We, that means we can do damage to Satan's kingdom. Eh, I just kind of want to get by. No. Man, we can storm the gates of hell. Go get it. We're told in Luke 12, 32, we've been given the king, and we're told in Ephesians 1, 23, we have the fullness of Christ in us. Ephesians 3.12 says we have boldness and complete confident access to God through faith. We're told in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do in us and through us exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. And boy, it goes on and on from there. But look at the church today. Do we see power? Do we see authority? Are the gates of hell still kind of standing strong? What happened? Unbelief? Sin, lack of prayer, I mean, all of those, and, and then some, but guess what? God gave these promises, and our anguish ought to cause us to cry out to God, God, make those things a reality. Your word says we can do this. We're not doing it. It's not God's fault. And so we confess, we repent, and then we pray according to the promises of God. Lord, cleanse me of my sin and empower me. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to storm some gates. And go. Live in that power and authority. And then number four, real quick. We offer ourselves as the answer to our own prayer. We offer ourselves as the answer to our own prayer. I'll try to make this really quick. But what we find in the last few verses of our passage is that Nehemiah asked for success in that he would be the answer to his own prayer. Because he was going to approach the king to ask that he would be sent to do something about the sad state of his people and the city. So he was, gonna, he was praying, Lord, somehow give me this opportunity to talk to the king so that he'll send me to Jerusalem so I can take care of this problem. Lord, this problem needs to be taken care of. Send me to take care of it. Here's my prayer. Use me as the answer. And this was going to be a dangerous thing because if you remember, I mentioned earlier, Artaxerxes was the one that made the decree to stop the work on the city. So it's like, Lord, how am I going to change the mind of, of a Medo-Persian king? And you've heard of the, the law of the Medes and the Persians. They don't change. How am I going to get him to somehow change his mind to take back his decree so we can start working on Jerusalem again? But you notice something. It emphasizes that Nehemiah was the cupbearer. And, and the cupbearer was actually a really cushy job. I mean, it was a good job. Now, that means that he would, he would be the one that would taste the food, maybe, and would drink the wine before the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So I guess there was, you know, some, some uh, danger to that job. But it was a prestigious job. He had a good job. He was making good income. He was living a comfortable life. And it, it would have been easy for him to say, well, I don't want to leave my comfortable life. 
Lord, something needs to be done about Jerusalem. I'm sure there's someone somewhere out there, somewhere out there that you can send to take care of it. You know, we could sit there and say, Lord, the church is in sad shape. I really wish you would send somebody to take care of that. Lord, get them lazy pastors out of there or something. No. It would have been easy for him just to sit back in ease and leave it up to somebody else to deal with the problem, but the anguish that he had would not allow that to happen. His anguish caused him to step up and say, I'm going to do something about it. Remember in Isaiah, the Lord said, hmm, whom shall I send? Who will go out for us? And Isaiah's like, me, send me. How many of us are going to do that? Who else is going to fix the problem of the church? Guess what? You are the church. If you're distressed about the state of the church, what makes you think you can take a back seat? You, you need to be the answer to the prayer that is given in your anguish. So when are we going to take these things seriously? Well, well you know, that pastor got really riled, riled up in, in the sermon today. All right, where are we going to lunch? Where's the anguish? Do you care what's happening in the world? What are you going to do about it? So I, I want to end with a quote from the late pastor David Wilkerson. He's most famous for writing The Cross and the Switchblade. And it's, it's going to be a really long quote. But I think these words need to be taken to heart. And I'll probably, I'm going to read them as fast as I can, but by golly, it, I, I wish I could preach like him and, and get words like this and ha have as much passion as he did. Because he hit it. And I hope we take his words to heart as well. So this is what David Wilkerson said, and this is from a sermon. He said, I look at the whole religious scene today and all I see are inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It is mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. We have an obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction, and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful. Acute, deeply felt inner pain because of the conditions about you, in you, and around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held onto our religious rhetoric and our revival talk but we've become so passive. All true passion is born out of anguish. All too true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church and to his people. 
and he would find a praying man or woman. He would find a praying man, and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God, God going to restore the ruin? God found a man who would not just have some flash of emotion, but not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. Nehemiah said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. Then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't any of those other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping, not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all that God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That there is such a coldness sweeping the land? Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that is in your own hearts? The sign of ruin that is slowly draining spiritual power and passion. Blind to lukewarmness. Blind to the mixture that is creeping in. That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and then kill it. So that you don't labor in prayer anymore. You don't weep before God anymore. You, can't, you can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Let me ask you, has what I just said convicted you at all? There is a great difference between anguish and concern. Concern is something that begins to interest you. You take an interest in a project or a cause or a concern or a need. Let me tell you something I've learned over all my years. If it is not born in anguish, then it is not born of the Holy Spirit. Where what you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God. I know now, until I am in agony, until I am anguished over it, all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do, where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know are not hearing the gospel and are going to hell? Or adults for that matter. You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing His heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. Oh God, the Holy Spirit is being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness. And something has to be done. There is going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we are willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it is getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of the internet or television. Then Wilkerson closes with this prayer. It's kind of a combination of prayer and then more preaching. But he said, Lord, some need to get to this altar and confess. I am not what I was. 
I am not where I am supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. I have wanted it easy. I just wanted to be happy. But Lord, true joy comes out of anguish. There is nothing of the flesh that will give joy. I don't care how much money, I don't care what kind of new house there is, absolutely nothing physical that can give joy. It is only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey Him and take on His heart and build the walls around your family. Build the walls around your own heart. Make you strong and impregnable against the enemy. God, that is what we desire. My question to you is, is that what you desire? Do you even care? If we don't, why in the world are we here? Going through this every week after week. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I don't want to be an insane church. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Thinking that somehow something's going to change. It will not change until we change. And so, Christian, if you don't have that anguish, come to the altar and pray that God gives you that anguish. And if you do have some holy anguish in you, come to the altar and cry out to God first to, to work in your own life, but then let it spill out to the church. But maybe you have a different kind of anguish because you're anguished about where your soul will spend eternity when you die. Well, guess what? We're all headed to hell until God intervened by sacrificing His Son, Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. So during the invitation, I'm going to be up front. You come talk to me. I'll introduce you to Jesus Christ, the only one who can save your soul. And He will relieve that anguish, but hopefully then you will pick up the anguish over the church and why it's so powerless and has no authority. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at kidsquest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.